Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome to the midweek bonus, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist podcast, ladies and gentlemen. As you may know, last week, last Friday, last Saturday, when we released and broadcast the last podcast, we talked a lot about the four reasons why Christians ought to be involved in politics. If you haven't listened to that, you really need to go back and listen to that before this podcast is going to make uh, a lot of sense. Well, it'll make sense standing alone, but, but what I'm going to do right now is just deal with the objections that people have to Christians getting involved. Just to review, in the last podcast, we gave four reasons why Christians ought to be involved in politics. First of all, Jesus got involved in politics. Secondly, the Bible commands us to love our neighbors, seek the welfare of our communities, and be salt and light. And politics is just one way we do that. Thirdly, politics affects our ability to preach the gospel and live according to our religious beliefs. And fourthly, we said God established government to protect innocent people from evil because politics and law are a matter of life and death, and governments are supposed to protect innocent people from evil. Unfortunately, sometimes governments do the opposite. In any event, we went through all of that. We spent the entire 48 minutes on it. Now I want to deal with some objections to uh, people who say Christians ought not be involved in politics. And probably the biggest objection you're going to get is the separation of church and state. You know, you can't set up a theocracy. What are you Christians trying to do? Well, first of all, let me point out that separation of church and state is not the issue. I'll tell you what the issue is in a minute. But let me just deal with the separation of church and state uh, as such right now. First of all, the separation of church and state, contrary to popular opinion, is not in the United States Constitution. The First Amendment says nothing about the separation of church and state. What it says is that Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, the government can't set up a national church and tell people that they ought to be a part of it. There's no religious test for serving in the federal government of the United States. Now, interestingly enough, the states early on had their own state churches. Five out of the 13 colonies, which became states originally, had their own state churches. And the last one to get rid of their state church was Massachusetts in 1833. So the, the Constitution didn't outlaw a state church, meaning... Uh, a church for, say, the state of New York or the state of Massachusetts or the state of Maryland. By the way, the, uh, the Maryland state church was, uh, was the Roman Catholic church. Okay? Maryland. Get it? Okay? <laughs> okay, Maryland. All right? Not every... Not, actually, I don't know if Maryland had a state church at the time, but five out of the 13 did. Uh, so you could have a state church, but not a federal church, if you would. Uh, but eventually the... The states realized it wasn't a good idea to have state churches, even though they gave money to state churches. And Thomas Jefferson actually gave federal money for uh, Native Americans who lived in the Michigan area to build a church. 
So money actually went from the federal government to build churches, actually, early on. So the Constitution did not prohibit that. And you say, well, where do we get this idea of separation of church and state? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist back in like 1803. The Danbury Baptists, I think it was Danbury, Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken, they were worried that the federal government was going to set up a state church. And Jefferson wrote him back and said, no, there's going to be a wall between church and state. Now, Jefferson's wall was a one-way wall, meaning he did not want the state to interfere with the church. He wanted the church to influence the state, but he didn't want the state to interfere with the church. And notice during the COVID, whole, the COVID lockdowns, it was the state interfering with the church, exactly what Thomas Jefferson didn't want to happen. Anyway, in a First Amendment case back in, I think it was 1947, I think it was Torcaso v. Watkins. I'm doing all this from memory here. We have it in our book, Legislating Morality, if you really want to read about it. Anyway, uh, the Supreme Court quoted the letter from Thomas Jefferson about the separation of church and state in dicta. Now, what's dicta? Dicta is the opinion uh, of a Supreme Court case, dicta. That's just a, a word they use to describe the opinion. And notice the word opinion. It's not law, it's opinion. Anyway, the Supreme Court just imported this language from Thomas Jefferson's letter. And since then, uh, other Supreme Courts or other courts, due to stare decisis, another uh, phrase used to mean precedent is important. Some say precedent is supreme. They would quote from Tercaso v. Watkins, and it just kind of got into our vernacular that the Constitution separates church and state, but it doesn't. Okay, and it, it makes no sense to look to Jefferson for insights as to what the First Amendment meant. Why? Because when the First Amendment was ratified, Jefferson wasn't even in the country. He was the ambassador to France. He was over in Paris. He wasn't part of, of uh, James Madison and the other founding fathers who really wrote the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Jefferson had nothing to do with that. All right, so... Now that we realize that separation of church and state is not in the Constitution, let's also point out that it's irrelevant anyway. Even if it was in the Constitution, you say, why, Frank? It's irrelevant to, to, to Christians getting involved in politics. Why? Because we're not legislating religion. We're not telling people where, when, or how, or if to worship. We're not telling people they have to be part of a church or, or do certain rites and rituals we're not, we're not doing any of that when we get involved in politics. We're not legislating religion, but we are legislating morality. You see, that's the distinction you need to make. There's a distinction between legislating religion and legislating morality. All laws legislate morality, but not all laws legislate religion. And I don't know of hardly anyone in America who wants to legislate religion. Certainly Christians. There aren't many Christians. There are people out there called theonomists or reconstructionists, but they're very few and, and far between. There's nobody with any significant political power that wants to say we want to impose, say, all the Bible uh, in law on America and force people to try and be Christians. That would be impossible anyway. You can't force people to have a faith uh, experience or I should say a faith commitment to Jesus you can't force conversion anyway. That was one of the big problems with the Crusades. You can't force people to become Christians. 
not in a salvific way. All you can do is put laws in place to prevent people from doing evil to one another. And that's what legislating morality is all about. And what kind of morality ought we legislate? The self-evident morality that Thomas Jefferson talks about in the Declaration of Independence. He says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created and endowed by their government. No, he doesn't say that. He says all men were created and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, Jefferson was not trying to legislate the Bible per se. He was trying to legislate the moral law consistent with the Bible. And this was the brilliance of Jefferson, is he wanted God-given moral absolutes, but he didn't want to impose religion on people. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have the Church of England all over again. He wanted to have God-given moral absolutes, but also religious freedom. Also, the tolerance that comes with religious freedom. So he got the best of both worlds. He said, these objective moral values come from God, but you don't need to be a Christian to recognize them, and we don't have to impose the Bible on people in order to have a just society. We're going to take laws that are consistent with the Bible, but you don't need to legislate the Bible per se. You say, well, but, it, but laws against uh, murder are in the Bible. Yeah, I know there are laws against murder in the Bible, but we're not legislating because they're in the Bible. We're legislating them because they're part of the natural law that is consistent with the Bible. Look, the Bible and natural law come from the same source, God. But if you're going to say that you can't legislate some law because there's a similar law in the Bible, then you're going to have to throw out virtually all of our laws because virtually all of our laws are in some way a derivative of one of the Ten Commandments. Because, particularly the second table of the Ten Commandments, because those are the natural laws that everybody intuitively understands. You intuitively understand it's wrong to murder because there's a God and you ought not, and people are valuable and you ought not take someone's valuable life from them. You ought not steal. You ought not rape. You ought not do all of these things. So, Yes, there are moral absolutes, and we can legislate morality without legislating religion. So whether or not the Constitution separates church and state is irrelevant. It doesn't, but it's still irrelevant. Now, notice that the left thinks they have a moral right to abortion. They think they have a moral right to same-sex marriage, or they think they have a moral right to transgender surgery or whatever. But by what standard do they have these moral rights? If there is no God, none of these are rights. And if there is a God, they're still not rights. God doesn't want us murdering our children. God doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. God doesn't want us to mutilate ourselves. And yet these people think that these are rights. They're not rights. Rights don't come from governments. They come from God. Now, governments are supposed to recognize these rights. And according to the Declaration of Independence... Governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. And when governments don't do that, the people have the right to get a new government. Of course, we do that through voting. If you haven't voted yet and you're listening to this before election day is over, you, you need to vote. And you ought to vote for righteousness and, a, and away from this evil that some in our government are now to pr are, are promoting, whether it's abortion, whether it's uh, transgender surgery, the mutilization of children, 
We need to vote against these. We need to vote for secure borders. We need to vote to uphold marriage. We need to vote to ensure that our military isn't politicized and our justicism isn't politicized. So Christians have to be involved. So the separation of church and state and the theocracy objections don't hold any water. We're not establishing a theocracy by saying you ought not murder your neighbor or you're not, you ought not murder unborn children. Those are moral principles consistent with religion, but even atheists agree you ought not murder people. And even if atheists don't agree, it's still a law we need to put in place, regardless of what religion you are. Now, that's the first objection. The second objection we get, well, this is going to hurt evangelism. Just preach the gospel. Well, let me ask you a question. What is the gospel? Is it just fire insurance? Is that, is that all we're here to do? Are we just here to try and get people to accept Jesus? And as soon as they do, nothing else. there's nothing else God wants us to do. Just get fire insurance and go on and live your life just however you want. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, yes, you get... You do get fire insurance, but you also love Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you're going to follow his commandments. If you love me, you will follow, you will follow my commandments. And his commandments are to be salt and light. And his commandments are to seek the welfare of people that you are living with in a community, to seek the welfare of the community. And his commands are to occupy until he comes. His commands are to love God and love your neighbor. And one way you do that is by putting good laws in place. Secondly, with regard to this hurt evangelism business, newsflash, our number one priority is not evangelism. It's not. Our number one priority is worship. And we do that by obeying God's commands as laid out in the New Covenant, the New Testament. We are to follow God's laws and leave the results to God. Notice Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you to do. Not, not, not just making people believers. We're supposed to make disciples, notice he said. Make disciples. That, that doesn't mean just getting fire insurance. And a disciple is somebody who loves God and loves his neighbor. And one of the ways you do love your neighbor and love God is to be his representative here on earth, to be his imager here on earth, to be a conscience of a nation, your nation, to seek what is good and right. And we do that. One way we do that is through politics, not the only way. It's not our top priority, but it is a priority. Wayne Grudem, who, as I say, wrote the great book, uh, Politics According to the Bible, says this. He says, the proper question is not does political influence take resources away from evangelism? He says the proper question is this one. Is political influence something God has called us to do? And the answer is yes, he has. As again, it's not our top priority, but it is a priority. Now, when critics say don't get political, they're assuming that God has no interest in influencing how people are treated by the law. If God didn't care, then he wouldn't have told the exiles to seek the welfare of the pagan nation of Babylon, as he does in Jeremiah 29.7. Nor would he, have, would he have had Jesus scold the Pharisees. Jesus wouldn't have scolded the Pharisees, the politicians of his day, for their bad lawmaking. Matthew 23.23. 23. Why would he tell us to be salt and light and occupy till I, uh, till I come? If he said, don't care about your neighbor. 
don't get involved politically at all. Also, as Grudem points out, that there are different gifts in the body. God didn't give everyone the same gift. And pastors are supposed to equip the saints to do ministry. This comes from Ephesians 4. Not to do it all themselves. So pastors are to lead their flock to do ministry, which includes defending freedom. Because, look, some people are really engaged politically. Other people are not. Okay, that's okay. I mean, even the people that are not engaged, you have to be engaged at some level. Maybe not to a level of, of, of some of your neighbors and fellow church people, fellow Christians in your congregation. God puts on the heart of, of different Christians, uh, different desires, different gifts. We have to be involved minimally to some extent, though, at least to know who to vote for and to vote according to biblical natural law values. But it's okay if you're not in, as engaged as the next person. But you have to be engaged at some point. Some people may be much more engaged in helping the poor than you. But when you can help the poor, some people may be more engaged and better at apologetics than you. But when you have to have some minimal idea of why Christianity is true, if you're going to be an ambassador to be a disciple for Christ, you know, some people have different gifts and different desires. God does that. But we have to be engaged at some minimal level. And by the way, pastors, if you're worried about losing donations, you need to remember something. You know, if you start preaching on these issues and people get upset, you're not in it for the money. We are to be called salt and light. That's what we are called to do. We are commanded to be salt and light. We are not called to be tax exempt. We're called to be salt and light to do what's right. One pastor, it was Steve Smotherman down at... Um, the TPUSA Pastors Conference back in August said this, too many pastors are building crowds rather than churches. They are not making disciples. And he said, preaching the gospel is not leaving parts out. The world does not get to tell us what the Bible says, and yet we let them. We let them silence parts of the Bible or even parts of the natural law because we're afraid of what they might say. Or we're afraid that some people are going to walk out the door. Well, you know, some people may walk out the door. In fact, Tony Perkins at the Family Research Council, who does some great work keeping Christians politically informed, says this. It is true that if you're a pastor and you start preaching on the controversial issues of the day, issues that are now political. But look, they weren't political 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Gender wasn't political. Marriage wasn't political. And now suddenly bathrooms weren't political. And now suddenly they are. Why? Well, maybe because... Um, the left has made them that way. And are we just supposed to say, well, now that you've decided they're political, we can't talk about them. Really? How are you loving people and loving your congregation if you don't give them what the Bible or what good reason says about those issues? You're not. You're not leading them rightly. And if you're worried, what Perkins says, if you're worried about people walking out the door, he says, man, some will. But you know what? At least in his experience, what he's seen is that some walk out the door, but a whole bunch more people show up, and those people are true disciples. They're the people that are going to be with you, and they're the ones that are actually going to grow your church. And you're not in it for the growth. You're not in it for the money. You're not in it for the crowds. But guess what? You start preaching the truth, you're going to start getting crowds, actually. People are hungry for people who are going to speak the truth. People are hungry for a track to run on. People want to know they're not insane by believing common sense principles about life and reality. One pastor said, 
If your people leave your church, they were never with you. You just need to tell the truth. You know, another problem we have is that, at least in America, we have the feminization of men and the blurring of genders. Men are no longer expected to lead or protect, ladies and gentlemen, but we must. And Jordan Peterson is really coming out strong on this point. He's saying, churches, you got to start appealing to men. They need to start leading. The problem is, is that men aren't leading. And that's why your know, church is basically 60-40 women. Is it any wonder that sometimes the church is catering more toward a softer approach? Because women are more attracted to that, men are not. Yes, men and women are different. Did you know that? Generally speaking, they are. And biologically speaking, they definitely are. You can't say that. I just did. Can you believe you can't say that anymore? Why do you put up with this, ladies and gentlemen? We need to speak the truth, to love people, and to love God. We're on a mission by God. We're not on a mission by government or culture. You can't expect your people to take risks and follow God if you as a pastor are unwilling to do so. Now, let me say a few other things, and maybe we'll unpack this more when I have a future guest on. But I do want to, as I'm pointing out, Christians need to be involved. But there are Christians that get involved, and they do it the wrong way, in my view. Christians are commanded to be salt and light, including politics. But how we do that is important. Here are some things Christians ought not do politically. Number one, we shouldn't be trying to impose Old Testament law meant only for Israel. This is, as I mentioned earlier, called theonomy or reconstructionism. We are legislating morality, not religion. The Old Testament law, everything from Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy, was just for Israel. That's what the Bible says. It's just for Israel. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, as we pointed out on this program several times before, the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews, I want to say 8.13, the Old Covenant's obsolete. Now, there are laws in the Old Testament consistent with the universal moral law, which comes from God's nature, which are repeated in the New Testament, but the dietary laws and some of the civil laws of Israel and the ceremony, they think they're gone, ladies and gentlemen. We're not supposed to be imposing that on anyone. As I mentioned earlier, we're legislating morality from the moral law written on our hearts. The one the Apostle Paul said is written on our hearts in Romans chapter 2, and the one that Thomas Jefferson said is self-evident. So, we shouldn't be trying to do that. Secondly, we shouldn't make politics our savior. We are not going to create utopia politically. That's what the left falsely thinks. At best, what we're, we're trying to do is we're trying to limit evil. We will never create heaven on earth. In fact, let's just do a little thought experiment, ladies and gentlemen. Imagine if we were so politically successful that we protected babies in the womb, we promoted only natural marriage, we did not mislead or mutilate children, we did not indoctrinate children in school, but just taught them reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, we did not teach racism to our kids or use race to divide people, we did not have the freedoms of speech or religion curtailed, notice how both of those, you got censorship and people not being able to actually live their beliefs in our society. But imagine if we, we were so successful politically, we fixed those issues. Imagine if we had secure borders. Imagine if we had a strong and ethical military and police. I think largely we do, but some people will disagree. But imagine if everything was perfect there politically. Imagine we had a balanced budget, we lowered inflation, and we had a strong economy. So what? Well, I shouldn't say so what. It'd be a great improvement. 
but we would still have only limited evil. We would have reduced suffering, and we, have, we would have given people a better shot at hearing the gospel, but we would still need a true Savior. We would still need Jesus. We would still be lost in our sins. We would still have a deceitful and wicked heart. We would still have deceitful and wicked hearts, and we wouldn't have heaven on earth. Look, America is a wonderful place with an exceptional constitution, unlike any place in the world, thanks to our founding fathers, who are nearly all believers. But America is not the promised land. It's good to seek the welfare of your country. But our primary allegiance is to God, not our nation. Our politics should be derived from Christianity. Your Christianity should not be derived from your politics. I'm reminded of what Lincoln said when he was asked, do you think God is on our side during the Civil War? He said, sir, the real question to ask is, are we on God's side? Okay. God is not on your side. You need to be on God's side. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we should fight for all these things. But even if we were successful, we would still have the biggest problem that we have, and that is we're sinners who need a Savior. The gospel is always our first priority. But as I mentioned earlier, the gospel can be curtailed or curtailed by politics. For no other reason you ought to be involved. It's for that reason. And the other reason is to love your neighbor. Now, what about this Christian nationalism? When people say Christian nationalism, I ask them, what do you mean by that? What, what does that even mean? There's no agreed upon, de agreed upon definition. And surveys even show most people don't even know what, what Christian nationalism is. I mean... Does anyone really think there are a significant number of conservatives who want to, because some people say this is Christian nationalism, impose Old Testament law on the nation or force people to go to church or to be Christians, which, as I said earlier, is impossible, or to reinstate slavery or Jim Crow laws? That would be anti-Christian. That wouldn't be Christian. But yet some people say, oh, Christians are white supremacists and they want, really? What do you, I mean, come on. Nonsense. It was the Christians that got rid of that. So, I think Christian nationalism is a media attempt to smear any Christian who is politically active by characterizing them as someone like the Taliban. A threat to the Bill of Rights, when in fact it is the left that is the threat to the Bill of Rights. I mean, who are the anti-science censors right now when it comes to, say, gender? It's not the Christians. <laughs> is it the right or the left? It's the left trying to censor everybody, not the Christians. Now, Here's where I say we're going to delve into this further. My friend, Dr. Michael Brown, has written a new book called uh, Political Seduction, I think it is. And I've read the book, and he and I have talked offline a little bit. Um, according to uh, Dr. Brown, he says there are some Christians on the charismatic side who are thinking that advancing America is advancing the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to have him on to discuss this. I don't agree with everything that he says in the book, but I think overall it's a book well worth reading because he does point out some Christians have gone too far. If you think America is the kingdom of God, you're out to lunch, okay? I want to protect America just like you do, but it's not the kingdom of God. Now, in his world, he's, he's in the charismatic side. He sees all this stuff. I don't see it. I'm not a charismatic, and maybe it's just a matter of perspective, so I'm going to have them on to discuss. I see too many pastors as passive. I see too many pastors are not involved enough. Now, Dr. Brown may see th things differently, so it's worth having a conversation about it. Over the next month or so, I'm going to have him on. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll address that more later. 
Uh, now, what about Christian uh, people saying America is a Christian nation? I think we need to speak just a minute on that. America had Christian influences and was descriptively Christian early on, but not prescriptively Christian. As I mentioned earlier, there is no religious test for serving in the federal government. Interestingly enough, most state constitutions did require you to, you to be a professing Christian to be in government. That They don't enforce that anymore, but their constitutions, many of them still have it. So when people say, is America a Christian nation, that needs to be unpacked, just like Christian nationalism needs to be unpacked. What do you mean by that? Okay. Was it a Christian nation descriptively? Yes. Was it a Christian nation prescriptively? No. They didn't require, no one required you to be a Christian to serve in government at the federal level. Okay. So a couple of things we can't do is try to impose Old Testament law on people, unless it's consistent with the New Testament. And the New Testament is consistent with natural law, like don't murder, don't steal, don't rape, protect men and women, marriage, that kind of thing. Um, making politics our savior, we can't do. How about making a candidate our savior? This this, you're, you're, everyone's thinking of Trump now, right? Look, our allegiance, allegiance is to a perfect God and what he has commanded us to do. Not blind allegiance to a candidate who, or a party who are both flawed. Some Christians were blindly loyal to Trump and couldn't admit any of his sins. Look, only Jesus was sinless. Trump's a sinner, Biden's a sinner, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We got to admit our faults. We have to love people enough to correct them when they are wrong. And those even may be people we agree with on policy. All candidates are sinners, yet character matters. So we should demand it in our candidates. Now, what about the fourth thing I think we can't do? And that is neglecting the weightier matters of the law. I've mentioned this earlier that Jesus said to the politicians of his day, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law or the more important matters of the law. This comes from Matthew 23, 23. So with this in mind, what do you do when you, you're in a situation we had in 2020 where you had two bad personalities, Trump and Biden? Now, admittedly, Trump was more caustic than Biden, although Biden lately has been very caustic with people asking him questions. He's like a grumpy old man. He's not very kind. But look, you only have two viable choices. Do you take personality over policy or policy over personality? Well, look how far apart they are on policy. One advocates death and the other life. One advocates child mutilation, mutilation easy for me to say, and, and the other does not. One advocates teaching racism to our kids and dividing people by race, the other doesn't. One is allowing drugs, gangs, terrorists, and sex traffickers to come over our borders and the other wants to secure the border. Look, I'd like to have both personality and policy. But if with these stark differences, these life and death differences, we can't neglect the more important matters of the law, as Jesus said. I think in this case, policy trumps personality. The candidate's main job is to protect innocent people from evil by putting the right policies in place. So I think we need to vote for the policies, even if we don't like the personality of the person supporting those policies. Now, in our system, you have an opportunity during the primaries to get both, to get the right personality and the right policies. But when you're down to two people in the general election, you've only got one or two, one of two choices. So I think you got to vote policy. That's why you put the guy in there. Yes, it's true. His character matters. And if he's a jerk, that's a bad thing for the country. It is. But you got to weigh these things out. And I think when you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, 
you've got to weigh the policies. And generally, I thought that policies that Trump put in were generally good, certainly much better than what Biden has put in. Just look at the two party platforms. How are you going to vote? You need to vote biblical natural law values. Now, you might say, well, Frank, I know the life issue. You're big on that life issue. Are you, are you a one-issue voter? No, I'm not a one-issue voter. I'm a one-issue disqualifier. What do I mean by that? Look, being pro-life doesn't necessarily qualify you as a candidate to be in office, but being pro-abortion necessarily disqualifies you as a candidate to be in office. Look, I want my, I want my president and my representative and my local officials, I want them to be pro-life but I also want them to be strong on other issues as well. So just being pro-life doesn't qualify you, but being pro-abortion, in my view, disqualifies you. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Now, uh, one pastor at this conference, actually this guy was an educator at the pastor's conference, TPUSA pastor's conference, said this. He summed up what kids are being taught in schools. He said, our kids are being taught to hate God, hate their country, and hate themselves. I thought that was a, a pretty accurate summary. Hate God, hate their country, and hate themselves. In fact, of course, in many public schools, they don't even mention God. Or he's mocked. So you say, well, how do you, how do you hate God? Well, you just don't acknowledge him. And, and, and you become the center of the universe. Whatever you want is right. Forget God. Ignore him. Think about this, though, ladies and gentlemen. More implications flow, more life and death implications flow from the question, does God exist in any other question? And yet in our education system, we don't even address the most important issue. Does God exist? Hmm. How do we consider our, consider our kids educated when we don't even educate them on the most important question, does God exist? Look, if God exists, there's meaning to life and there's a certain way to live it. If God doesn't exist, there's no meaning to life and it doesn't matter how you live it. Ultimately, there's no right or wrong. There's no ultimate outcome. Frederick Douglass said something very profound. He said, it's easier to build strong children than to, than to repair broken men. Let me say that again. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. We got to start building strong children. And that, that means giving them a God-centered, at least God-acknowledging education. And we're not. Now, last thing on this issue. Another thing we get wrong, in addition to trying to impose Old Testament laws that aren't consistent with the natural law, or I shouldn't say aren't consistent, aren't part of the natural law, in addition to making politics our savior, or making a political candidate our savior, or neglecting the weightier matters of the law when we get involved politically, the other thing that we sometimes get wrong is that we think the Bible speaks to every issue and that all Christians must agree with you on unaddressed issues. There are some, some disputable issues that Christians can disagree on politically. Look, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning he's recognizing two different spheres, church and state. Not that the church can't influence the state, but there are some things that the state uh, decides without much guidance from the church, like the tax rate. What should the tax rate be? Well, you know, God only taking 10% in the Old Testament. Maybe that's a good, 
A good rule of thumb for us. Well, 10% of everything you own, though, so it's more than just 10% of what you make. But it certainly wasn't 50%, which is the tax rate for most of us. Maybe the, maybe, maybe the Bible does have something to say about that. But look, Christians can debate that. And many of the programs that the government puts out are ends and means issues. Look, we all agree we ought to help the poor. The question is, that's the ends. The question is, how do we do that? What's the best way of doing that? We all agree we ought to protect the environment. The question is, that that's the ends. The question is, how do we do that? Not every environmental program is a good one. Some of them are going to bankrupt people. Some of the climate change uh, go green initiatives would put people into poverty, extreme poverty. These are trade-offs. You just can't say, well, it's a good program. It's going to say, no, it might not. And don't get me started on climate change. It's a whole nother question. But I always ask people who think they, uh, climate change is what it is and you know we've got to reduce global emissions. I always ask them, are you certainly sure that climate change is caused by human initiatives, by human emissions of CO2? Because didn't we have ice ages and warm ages before human beings ever existed? The climate's always been changing. How do you know it's human beings doing it? And by the way, even if we reduced our climate emissions, our CO2 emissions to zero, according to the models, it, would, it wouldn't change global temperatures virtually at all. Why? Because China and India and other developing nations aren't going to do it. So it's not going to, well, I'm going into it now. I shouldn't even be going into it. The point is, is that just because a Christian doesn't agree with your means to a given end doesn't mean they're wrong. Now, when it comes to big issues like life and death, those aren't ends and means. All Christians should be pro-life. All Christians should be pro-marriage. These are explicit in the Bible. All Christians should protect children from the gender mutilators. All Christians should do that. But when it comes to, you know, how do you protect the environment, what the tax rate is, this government program, that government, you know, you can, you can debate those things. Even vaccines and wearing masks. I noticed that one... Um, one uh, pastor at this conference said, in the Bible, the sick were quarantined, not the healthy. Ooh, interesting insight. Yet we tried to quarantine everybody. Now, Christians can debate these issues is what I'm saying. And maybe there is a right side to this, but it's not one of these essentials like um, the abortion issue. Although now we're seeing so many of these vaccines or the results of these vaccines it appears have been actually life and death results. People are dying of, of heart issues, it seems. And of course, there's people are claiming that's misinformation. I don't think it's misinformation. In fact, the CDC is actually starting to admit this now. In any event, these are issues we can debate. And it's really hard now, unfortunately, in a world of virtually limitless information to even know what's true about some of these issues. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We still have the word of God and we still have natural law. Don't allow the noise of the world to drown out the word of God. So stay strong, ladies and gentlemen. We have to be involved. None of these objections are good objections to Christians being involved. But when we get involved politically, we have to do it the right way. Uh, so... Look out for a future program. I will have Dr. Michael Brown on, Brown on Dr. Michael Brown, 
uh, to discuss these issues a little bit further. In the meantime, check out our website, crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, and join our crossexamined community. If you want to discuss any of these issues without fear of being doxxed, outed, or fired because your employer does not like your political or religious position, that's what the cross-examined community it's all about. It's on our website. Go to crossexamine.org, look on cross-examined community, and Lord willing, I will see you here next week, same time, not only for the main show, but also for the bonus show. God bless.